Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The 414. As always, I'm your host, Thomas Hoven, joined today by none other than Cooper Jacks. Thanks for coming on, Cooper. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Of course. So before I get into it with Cooper, there are a couple of revisions to prior statements that I need to make. First of all, uh, an episode or two back, I talked about Dad telling me to not join Fiji. Supposedly, he did not say that and actually said to not join Faisai. And this might actually be believable because in the 80s, back in his day, Beta and Faisai... Uh, we're always fighting, throwing eggs at each other and whatnot. So I don't know. We'll, t- we'll take his word on that one. The second one, I know it was the last episode when I was talking about not even truly knowing the, um, the, my, about which, the specifics of my Caucasian ethnicities. And I mentioned Norwegian. And after listening to it, my mom texted me saying, we are not Norwegian. I said, what? And so that made me feel pretty bad. And then a day or two later, she said, wait, we actually are about one-eighth Norwegian. And so, first of all, I was right. But second of all, uh, I, I think, not to call mom out too much, but even her, uh, I guess, um, n- lack of 100% confidence knowledge of her own ethnicity, I think, drives a point of how I didn't even know. But... She's mom's mom's trying to do some work to exactly figure it all out. But at this point, she's got definitely Norwegian, Dutch, uh, Irish, maybe. Oh, and definitely Hungarian, maybe Danish. So TBD. But Cooper, Cooper, thank you for coming on. And the first thing that we have to talk about is the butterfly effect. You, you know, the roughly the idea, yes. the 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 short idea is like. A butterfly flaps its wings, which changes the trajectory of the wind, which blows a leaf somewhere, which makes a, which the leaf gets in a stranger's eye, and since the leaf got in his eye, he stopped walking, and since he stopped walking, he saw a pebble on the ground, and since he saw the pebble on the ground, he knelt down, and since he knelt down, he felt his phone, and he felt his phone in his pocket ring, and he wouldn't have felt the ring of the phone, and the ring was from his buddy, and his buddy wanted him to go with him to an event right now, and so he picked up the phone, and together they went to the event, and at the event he met this girl, and this girl was awesome, and they got married, and it never would have happened if the butterfly did not flap its wings. Yeah, the uh, ripple effect. The ripple, yes, yeah. exactly. I think it really is interesting because you can you can argue how how you think some little change may or may not actually have any effect, but the reason I say we just have to talk about this is because it's been, in different contexts, brought up to me like three times in the past couple weeks. The first was... I was showering with um, Owen Smith, one of the freshmen at Fiji, showering in the communal showers, as you do, just to be clear. And, um, and he, said, he said, hey, you remember when I was visiting Wabash and the independent I was staying with just brought me by Fiji and I wasn't planning on joining fraternity and here we are? I said, yeah, man. And he was like, I, I never would have been here and wouldn't have made all these memories with you guys if he didn't bring me by. And I said, yeah, that, I'm glad he did that. I'm glad to have you. And that is pretty crazy. And then um, 
bit later, so at Thanksgiving dinner, I was talking to my grandfather, and so grandpa, uh, mom's dad, he was everything. He was the governor of South Bend, a judge, businessman, um, but so to do that, he had to go to law school, and I had just gotten my law school application submitted maybe two or three days before Thanksgiving, so that was big talk at Thanksgiving, uh, but he was telling me that he kind of wishes he would have, he's from South Bend, so he kind of wishes he would have stayed in the state, so gone to probably IU or Notre Dame for law school. Um, though Grandpa went to law school in at Columbia in New York. Uh, he was actually in class with the former NBA commissioner, David Stern, I think is his name. David Stern, pretty sure. Mm, pretty sure. I think so. Um, so that's kind of cool. Uh, but then he said, he said, you know, I say that, but I would not have met your grandmother if I didn't go to New York. And I said, well, I'm, I'm pretty glad you went to New York then. Yeah. And he's because, you know, I wouldn't be here without that. And then I guess a kind of somewhat similar similar idea. Um, the So last podcast was the Fatherhood Project. And the final exam, not exam, the final assignment for fatherhood is a paper where you write about an interview that you conduct with your own father. And so I also had that interview over break and was talking to my dad. And he mentioned something I never knew that right as I, right before I started kindergarten, he had these job opportunities out of state um, in Colorado. uh, New York was another one. And Delaware was a big one. So he, he was really considering those. And I'm just thinking, man, I'm glad you didn't do that just because of all the childhood friendships and even from childhood to what because if I grow up in Denver I'm probably not uh, at Wabash and so everything since then uh, I'm, I'm glad things have worked out and so I have a f- couple takeaways from this butterfly effect one Mr. Jacks is that bad things that happen in our lives I think also contribute to the good that happens afterwards. Um, And even if it's not as directly as I lost this game, which made me work harder, which made me win the championship later in life, even more indirectly. And so my first question for you is, has there been any any negative outcome recently or in your life um, ever that at the time you were just, man, this really stinks. And then reflecting later, even now, you think maybe was good for you. I mean, I think the, the pretty obvious answer here is the way Chapel Singh turned out. That uh, was a real bummer of time. Um, Scoot closer. Oh, yeah, I yeah. Gotcha. Thanks. Yeah, so I think um, Sphinx Club had kind of become complacent in my eyes. Like we had just kind of been doing things as they were for many years now, like maybe we'd lose a thing here, here and there. Um, first thing that comes to mind, just a little tradition we lost, is um, I remember being at football games as a younger lad and seeing every time we would score a touchdown, Sphinx Club would say, hold Wabash as fast as we could before we did push-ups. We've kind of lost that, and that's just one example of things that have kind of fizzled out, is a good way to put it. But... I think that was, as unfortunate as Chapel Singh turned out, a pretty good way to reflect a little bit and see, you know, maybe we shouldn't be complacent here. There are a lot of things that need to change to really bring back what the Sphinx Club should be. So, 
trying to think of some other examples of the butterfly effect because it is really interesting to reflect back on your life and kind of analyze these big things that can come of it. Um, first thing I would probably say is um, really forming the relationship with my best friend um, named Garrett. Um, went to go hang out with a buddy of mine named Cameron. We were pretty decent friends in elementary school and first time I'd ever met Garrett was in fourth grade because I decided to tag along with him to, uh, I don't even remember what we were doing, but we hopped in the car together and then Cameron is Garrett's cousin, so he was also along with us on the ride and we just bonded really closely from there and um, I mean, it's history now. I visited him and his wife out in California for spring break last year, so. That's super cool. Yeah, he's a Marine now, so over in the Oceanside, over at Camp Pendleton. And, um, had I not gotten in the little minivan of Cameron and his mom that day, I probably, I mean, would have eventually met him. We did all the same sports and everything, come to find out later on. But it makes you wonder, would you have done those things? Exactly. Had it not been for the first little catalyst event there. Nice, nice. Okay, so you mentioned the Sphinx Club. Mm-hmm. Just today, really, you had your final, final act as the Sphinx Club president. So first, kudos to you on a very well, very well run term. My first question about all of that. Uh, so p- people come here on here a lot and want to ask me about president of the fraternity. And so I would like to flip that around and ask you about your experience as president of the Sphinx Club, particularly what you think is different about leading that organization versus leading a fraternity? Yeah, so Sphinx Club can be looked at as a fraternity, yes, but at the same time, it's so unique. It's really just a, like, I view the Sphinx Club as a social club, really, um, in all our founding documents says this, um, this our organization is purely social club, and in the grand scheme of things, it really is. Um, I know we have the leadership role, but I really view it more as a social club of leaders. So, for example, you get a lot of fraternity presidents in the Sphinx Club. There's not really as much of a sense of order as there is in a living unit. Fraternities have a much bigger responsibility. and I don't know if liability is really the right word, but you're holding your brothers accountable that you physically live with. You're brushing your teeth next to them in the morning. You're eating breakfast with them every day. Whereas the Sphinx Club is really just a school spirit promotion club and really cherishing the traditions that this place has to offer. So as far as holding people accountable, it's not to the same degree. I feel like that responsibility lies more with your pledge class, for example, if you're in a fraternity. Um, I think the Sphinx Club is more about having a good time and just giving Wabash the best name we physically can. Okay, okay. I like that answer. And so... To compliment you, something that I think you did very well, which I think is also made possible probably by what you're saying about how the ideally we're a group of leaders, is that your your leadership was very much, I'm here to help facilitate things, but you all are very capable, <clears throat> excuse me, of doing what doing things that need to get done, whether it's, you know, delegating out other homecoming responsibilities um, or just just understanding that that your your constituents um, are 
are responsible guys that can get their stuff done without you without you having to hold their hand and walk them along. Yeah. So that's kind of a big point of leadership in general. I think it's really important to realize you're not better than them. You're not better than the ones you're leading. You're not superior to them. You should be leading from an equal playing field. And I feel like that's a lot easier in the Sphinx Club because we do pick out really qualified guys who are kind of the cream of the crop as a term that gets thrown around. Um, whereas, let's say, in a freshman pledge class or whatnot, you're probably going to get harped on by the older guys because they've been around, they know a little more. Um, you're kind of trying to find your footing as a freshman here. I mean, it's a new environment. You're trying to kind of build your case and um, justify your example here. But um, I don't know. In the Sphinx Club, you really don't see that. Like, you've kind of already proven yourself on this campus. Um, feel like you've already got a solid head on your shoulders by the time you can rush for Sphinx Club. I like that. I like that very much. Something else, when I was talking to my dad just about life and fatherhood and such, he, he mentioned how um, part one of the good things about being a parent is if you do it right, that you'll develop some friendships with the parents of your children's friends. Uh, and the I've reflecting, I've noticed that some of my favorite relationships in life are the friends who uh, are parents or friends because then because then it it really makes it feel like we're family because I can go up to their parents and hang out and just really that we know each other and that that was talking about yeah that's 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 that communion aspect that we as humans crave and I bring this up because a I think it's a good point but b um, the one of the kind of the groups that I'm thinking of in my life that with my own friends and my parents' friends, all of the dads, so my father and a lot of my friends' fathers, big bourbon fans. Oh, yeah, and they, here we go. So, Cooper, would you like to tell us what you did this summer? Yeah, so I interned over the summer in St. Louis at still 630 with David Wiggler's class at 03. He was a beta alum, so shout out any beta audience fans. Um, so pretty much I had originally heard about this internship opportunity on my first ever visit to Wabash College. I came to hang out with my brother and stay overnight with him. Um, I want to say I was, I can't even remember the first night I stayed here. I think I was a sophomore in high school. Sophomore, wow. Anyway, not that important. Um, but I was talking to my brother's pledge dad by the name of Brian Roberts, and he had just gotten done working his summer at Still 630 as well. So I just thought that was sweet. I was like, what did you do? And he's like, oh, sorts of things. I got to try different whiskeys and whatnot. I even got to make a barrel. Um, I had to climb into the pot still and hand scrub it down. I was like, wow, that is a really hands-on experience. That's pretty cool. I like whiskey. How can I get this internship? So, uh, unfortunately, in the United States, got to be 21 yeah. drinks, so I had to wait all this time up until the summer before my senior year, and I almost didn't even apply to it because I got a opportunity to go live in Seattle for the summer with okay. some family friends and um, work with their in-house chef as a little sous chef mm. and just live on the Puget Sound, go fish for all the food we were going to cook for the day. And like, I don't know, that sounded pretty darn cool too. But at the same time, I feel like I could have done that at any point in my life. So why waste the kind of once in a lifetime opportunity to go work with um, Dave down at 
still 630 because I'm not going to be able to pick that up next year. Or, you probably could, but um, not through a Wabash internship as I will not be here. But um, yeah, that was a really cool opportunity. One, just living in a big city on my own. I kind of had preconceived notions that I always want to live in a smaller town. Um, don't really like the noise and busyness of a city. So it was good in the sense that I got to confirm I did not really enjoy living full-time in a big city. Um, too much traffic, man. <laughs> but um, as far as the actual job goes, I think absolutely fantastic um, summer internship for a Wabash man because it, if you do not have a solid work ethic, it will teach you that. There are some long days. Um, it's a lot of random things. Like, for example, after a distillation run, would have to climb into the little distillation pots and just scrub them down by hand with little hand sponges. Um, teaches you a, a good value and a good merit in a hard day's work. Okay. Okay. That is very respectable. And so did you did you get that opportunity to make your own barrel? I did. Oh, I yeah. Did. I made oh, yeah. a single malt whiskey. Um, so here in about five years' time, I'll be able to try some bottles from the barrel that has my signature on it. That's so cool. Very excited for that. Well, I'll... Hopefully I'm around in five years so I can try some of your handmade. Um, so here's a question. Is is whiskey and bourbon, is it similar to beer? Not in, I understand it's liquor, everyone. Calm down, <laughs> calm down. But is it similar in the fact of, like, the acquired taste aspect? Because that's that's kind of my experience with beer, and I'm still, when it comes to whiskey, eh, so... That's fair. I think it's an acquired taste for sure, yes. Um, I've come to really appreciate, like, I always thought bourbon was my favorite, but I've come to appreciate scotches and smoked single malts a little more. I like the natural, earthy flavor of the smoke. Um, you can add different types of smokes to the um, overall grain mash and that adds a whole bunch of different flavor notes not gonna lie i have become a whiskey snob but perks of the job um absolutely an acquired taste though um especially now after working all summer where i got to drink a lot of cash drink stuff which is just the proof it comes out of the barrel at before water's added to proof it down um i very 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 deeply appreciate cash strength now just say something comes out at 125.8 proof that's a really strong alcohol content. But at this point, because I've drank so much of it, um, it brings open a bunch of different flavors in there that I would not have previously enjoyed because all I would have tasted is a fire on my tongue mm. because that's pretty strong. Yeah. Um, but yes, absolutely an acquired taste. Mm. Speaking of internships, this is, I guess I, I really made this. Um, this observation a couple summers ago so not this past summer but the year before i was interning at a law firm it was a good experience i i probably talked about this before i learned a lot the a lot of the legal uh jargon and such but the thing is it was a true nine to five and i was really just at the desk about all day um even i even eat lunch at my desk in the front of the office most of the time. Um, and, you know, they, they, they treated me really well, and it was good. And it's not like I couldn't go out and take a walk for a few minutes if I needed, stuff like that. But I was I was thinking, man, this really kind of stinks compared to the previous summers as a summer camp counselor yeah. where you're running around having a good time, not only with the campers, but the counselors, your fellow uh, 
colleagues or, or your friends, stuff like that. And eventually, I I thought, like, man, I'm kind of kind of not in a good mood sometimes, and I I don't I don't know why. And at, probably not until much much later, I thought about a big factor being the sun. Yeah, for sure. The go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, there's a studies I've read. Yes, which, yeah. Um, granted, I'm not the biggest Div One guy, so <laughs> the studies I read are not too extensive, but I've looked into it because I've noticed a similar pattern. If I'm inside all day, just lounging and being lazy. I feel terrible. Whereas if I'm out, let's say just hiking in the woods or fishing all day, I feel rejuvenated when I come back inside, which is kind of weird because you think you'd be all tired from doing stuff outside all day, which there is that aspect too. But on days you're outside or even mowing, like you just feel better overall. I think the vitamin D you get from the sun is yeah. crucial um, to human life. And I, there's definitely merit in that. Yeah. Well, in it, because. Um... That that summer, uh, I wasn't my I like even if I was running, it was probably on a treadmill in the gym, and my workouts I was more so in the weight room. So again, inside, and so it, yeah, it was just no no sun whatsoever, and so that that kind of brings me to now, especially during these winter months when it's getting dark at four thirty five p.m. It's really important that even though we've got work or class during the day that you find time to get 20 minutes, maybe even an hour if you can, outside soaking up those rays. Yeah, I I agree with that completely. I think even anecdotally, again, no scientific evidence here, but even just seeing sunlight through a window makes me feel better. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know if you can get vitamin D from just looking at sunlight rather than being in it and absorbing it. I'm sure probably not. Not a big photosynthesis <laughs> figure, but um, even like, when was it? Um, freshman year when we had that really long winter break. Mm-hmm. We were done at Thanksgiving. Yeah. Um, I mean, I pretty much just bummed out and sat in the basement for the most part. Um, I wasn't on my gym routine at that point in time, so I would just wake up, go upstairs and get some food, and just kind of go back down to the basement. Uh, it was really sad if you think about it, but. I felt terrible doing that because in the basement, I'm not going to be ever seeing sunlight or being out in it. Right. Um, almost makes you wonder if, like, you know, the, um, people talk about cabin fever. Um, wonder, and, like, seasonal depression. I wonder if that has a lot to do with it. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. I'm thinking, now that you're saying this, I'm thinking about, um, yes, that the idea of, because... When you seasonal depression, I really associate with the winter months. Yes. And yeah. Well, I mean, there's something depressing, like especially in high school. I don't get it as much now, but like high school, going to school when it's dark outside, and then after wrestling practice, yep. outside, it's dark again. Yep. Never seeing the sun. It, it does something. Yeah. It really does. Like seasonal depression is definitely a real thing. Hundred percent. Wow. I did. I never made that connection. That. That's a good point. Okay, so you mentioned looking into this Seattle opportunity yeah. last summer where you could have done lots of um, cooking. Mm-hmm. And so that was something else I wanted to ask about. And this might sound like a stupid question, um, but so to preface, during our Ryan ship, 
you were dubbed Grill Daddy. I was. That's because you were man the grill majority of the time and also cooking up some other things for the boys. And so, where do your skills come from? My skills come from taking a good gander at my physique. I like to eat, so might as well learn how to make some good food. Um, I was even talking to you about my weekend plans. Mm-hmm. Presidency. I have a lot more free time, a lot less stress um, in my life now. So something I really like to do is cook. So I'm gonna go over to Kroger and buy some guanciale and buy some Parmigiano Reggiano and make a nice pork carbonara. Mm. Yeah, I've always cooked. Really, um, probably comes mostly like my love of food from my mom. She's a really good cook. Okay. And, um, like if you think about the traditional family roles that we've been talking about in fatherhood. Uh-huh. meal ready and I think there is nothing better than coming home to a fresh home cooked meal especially um, like my mom being able to blend seasonings which is um, something unfortunately we miss out on here (laughs) sometimes but um, I think that's ultimately where my love of cooking came from because like if I was home from a sports practice early or whatnot and dad wasn't home yet I would go help mom cook some dinner or you know mostly just so I could eat little bits and scraps before it was made um Very nice. Uh, you you mentioning kind of the Wabash food, and I was talking about the acquired tastes of whiskey earlier. It made me just remember something. And so I I was very, very picky growing up, and I, I got better as things went along. And I'll still, I will not touch beans. I will not touch beans. Of any kind, like refried black beans? No, beans. no refried, no boiled. Uh, Green green beans, that's a lot different. Uh, maybe, maybe, depending. But yeah, like the kind of refried or black, uh-uh, uh-uh. I will not, not touch. No kidney beans. No, uh-uh, <laughs> uh-uh. Which, which is a shame because apparently kidney beans are high in protein. High in protein and very good in chili. Yeah, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. But, okay, so besides besides beans, though, I've, I have gotten better. Um, but... One time, uh, this must have been like, I don't know, third, fourth grade, maybe a little older, because I was pr- probably a little older because I remember you we feeling a little more embarrassed. Um, so, but I was still pretty picky at this time, and uh, one of my buddies, he said something like, "Isn't it the best when uh, after a basketball game or something, your mom takes you to Subway and?" Instead of instead of getting what you usually get with all the um, with all the lettuce and peppers and onions of just getting a turkey sandwich with cheese and nothing else, and I remember saying, "Oh yeah, yeah, that is the best." Thinking I get that every single time, <laughs> but yeah, but I do think something that is a hundred percent true is that even though by the time I got to college, I was I was a lot better in, in trying things, but you get to college. And you got to eat what chef's making. Yeah, um, there's, there's no time to go out and make your own food. And none of us certainly have the uh, budget to do that. Right. And, like, something else is um, a lot of times even say say she made burgers, which she does a good amount, and they're very good. 
if I want to, if there might not be enough for me to have more than two sometimes, and which, you know, I probably don't need more than two anyway. But if I want to really fill up, then I might throw on some couple slabs of lettuce and tomatoes and onions. At first, not because I literally particularly love them, but I'm just trying to get a little more in me, and I know those aren't, aren't even super caloric, but, you know, maybe make you feel... Yeah, sure. right. Um, and so I, that that is a big impact that being, uh, being here has had on me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you're up at the... Well, when we had Bon Appetit, we had... Um, <laughs> funny enough, we used to get joked about in the house our vegetables would have enough oil in them that the U.S. Army might <laughs> hate them. Um, so, I don't... There were weird spice blends on our vegetables, so I would generally avoid those. Like, it would just be some squash and mm. um, zucchini thrown together with about a pound of olive oil and cumin for some reason. It's an odd blend. But in general, like let's say there's a big old vat of green beans alongside, um, say you have pork chops or yep. something, you're going to eat the green beans mm. just because what else is there to eat? If there's a set meal for you, you might as well take it. I think oh. that is a good advantage of college yeah. um, prepped food. When it comes to vegetables, I think, well... I've started to enjoy some cooked vegetables a lot more, but like, I think like a raw, a raw carrot is still my favorite vegetable. Um, and then when like when they when they make carrots and they're all soggy and cooked, yeah. I don't. That's not. That's not. That's not it. But the the best cooked vegetables are like at um if you ever get hibachi. Yes. The that yeah. that those cooked vegetables I can deal with for oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah, but but I also don't think, and, and they're probably not like the healthiest vegetables in the world. But they're like sometimes, sometimes, sometimes here they're making like these maple, uh, like maple glazed carrots. Like is it even a vegetable at that point? Uh, I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um, actually, funny enough, one of my buddies back home introduced me to his favorite drug food. Oh. Um, just raw radishes. Radish. Ooh, I don't know about that. I was apparently not inebriated enough to enjoy it as much as he did, but that is his go-to if you want to give that a try. There you go. Um, not that good, though. Yeah, I don't know if I will. I'll be honest. I don't know if I will, <laughs> but that's okay. That's okay. Really looking forward to comps. Are you? Not the whole prep study phase for it of a month of grinding away, reading through every text I've ever read for my major, but... For the opportunity, and this will sound very nerdy, but we're in college, it's okay. Um, I am kind of excited to showcase all my knowledge that I've built over the past four years here. Why don't you give a... I probably have done this before, but for the non-Wabash audience, give a quick comps rundown. What is that? So, comps are a big old exam. It's a long-standing tradition here at Wabash College, a place very focused on tradition. And um, it's really to see if you've learned anything over your four years here, see if you've transformed into a Wabash man. So there are two sessions on like over two days of written portions, and um, those are pretty much just a standard exam over your past four years of learning from the major. I mean, nothing too revolutionary there. But then about a week or so later, there is a section of the exam called orals, and you will give an oral exam. There's really no way you can study for it. Uh, it's just pretty much a conversation that happens in which you will answer questions from a department uh, representative.
representative from your major, department representative from your minor, and you have what's called an at-large, which is just a random professor chosen completely blindly. Um, like, for example, my at-large professor, I've never had her in class before, never even taken a class from her department. But uh, it's to my understanding that they kind of present you questions about Wabash in general to really see if you've grasped the concept of can you critically think through something? Because to me, in my mind, that's kind of the priority of Wabash College, I think is a good way to put it. Um, doesn't necessarily matter what you study, it's kind of how you study it. So for example, I'm a German major, and the biggest piece that I've picked up on that, of the, like relating to critical thinking, is if I can read an old text from 1712, like an old poem, and be able to analyze that in non-native tongues, then I feel I've really mastered the idea of critical thinking and really breaking the problem down from its root and analyzing it. Yeah, I, I kind of describe it as it, it's kind of like, oral is kind of like that liberal arts capstone sure. aspect of it. Can you synthesize not only your major and minor with the rest of your Wabash education, can but you can, tie you, it all together, can you tie it all together? So. And can you kind of take that, that meta approach, that kind of outside perspective on what you did and how that all fits together. And so, um, so my, so I'm a physics major. So I got the physics professor on orals, um, and then I have two minors, math and classics. And so if you have two minors, they just choose one of them randomly. And so I wasn't sure which one I wanted. Math would probably be a little harder overall. But I'll be studying a lot of it for physics anyway. Would have tied in nicely. Right. Versus uh, classics, though it may have been easier overall, there would have been, I, probably about a little less than half of my classics minor came from taking Greek courses. And so I, it's been probably a year and a half-ish since then. So I'm going to have... And I did end up getting classics, so I'm gonna have to, <laughs> gonna have to, gonna have to uh, dig into the Greek textbooks, but that'll be okay. And then my um, my at large is a uh, poli sci professor, which I have taken a couple poli sci classes, not with him though, but it should be good. Yeah, it should be fun. Um, you touched on the fact that it's a uh, kind of like you approach it as like a meta analysis and how you can synthesize your answers to fit. It's actually a pretty interesting idea that came up in the Writing Center prep course, actually. Um, we discussed the ideas of a discourse community, and it kind of changed the way I looked at things. Like, that was kind of my light bulb moment at Wabash. What do you mean by discourse community? So a discourse community would be, um, give a prime example that was given in class. Um, I believe, I don't, Apollo 10, was that the one that blew up? Apollo X, we'll call it that. Whichever sure. one that blew up. Um, they actually knew there was something wrong with it, like from the engineer's report. Yeah, that rings a bell. they couldn't, um, or because they were in an engineer's discourse community, like they knew how to talk to other engineers, like so they understood. But when the people in charge of the, um, like the CEOs of the company and whatnot, were presented this information, they didn't really understand the engineer's discourse community. So there was a fatal flaw there in which they just said oh you need to replace these o-rings or whatever it was um, but they didn't quite understand that like they weren't deeply immersed into that discourse community so catastrophic, uh, catastrophic events ensued so 
taking that idea of discourse communities, I think comps is a great way to be able to show that you can immerse yourself into another discourse community. So for example, in my oral comps, if my at-large professor asks me a biology-related question, I think my education has prepared me to kind of frame the answer from a biology uh, point of view. Granted, it won't be very good because I've never had biology, but I think I can delve into that discourse community well enough. And, I hope so. Okay, okay, and maybe, maybe I guess the reverse direction of doing that would be trying to get your at-large professor t to understand mm -hmm. what you're talking about within the context of your major. Yeah. And in your case, you're talking about how you said you might have to translate. Yeah, so I believe with being a German major, it's to my understanding, I mean, that's pretty much just from hearing from previous majors and my brother included, that you just kind of do live translation as you're speaking, which makes sense because let's say I was speaking fluently in German right now and you were my at-large professor probably wouldn't understand what was going on, so you would just say, yep, sounds good. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, and plus I think that adds to the benefit of if you can do a little live translation, um, one, it keeps all the other professors in the loop, but two, also shows a pretty neat skill to have. Yeah. Yeah, and the something this when when it comes to comps, you know, we always talk about the orals because that's the sexy part. But um, the 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 overall grade, the written portion, seventy five percent of it, yes. the orals only being twenty five. Uh, so you know, it's still a significant amount, um, but pre predominantly, it's just that kind of comprehensive final final exam of your major that is the most time that you'll spend preparing for. For sure. Yeah. I think a good deal of my oral portion, at least from the German and classic side of things, is pretty much a synthesis of all the classes you've taken. You just kind of talk about it. Because, I mean, I'm not just going to have a sit-down conversation just hanging out with the professors in there. It will be academically centered. At least I hope so. If not, then all the studying will be yeah. I'm just having a good old sit-down talk with them. Fair, fair. Okay, I've got one more question for you. All right. And so you you mentioned you're in fatherhood. Yes. Class that I've talked about many a time on the podcast already. A couple weeks ago, right before break, the feedies were we were having a nice conversation, uh, a, a thought-provoking, stimulating one, different topics, different ideas. And someone, um, chat out Tommy, I think I'll have him on soon, he posed the question, if you knew you were going to die, would you still have children? And I think um, to kind of frame it, because I've, I've asked a couple people this question. Let's, let's, let's say that you're going to die at 40, maybe 45, like 40, 45. There's your question. What I do it? Would you have children? I do think I would, yes, because if all goes to plan and Lord knows how things will turn out, um, want to have a well-established career before I have children, why not? So I'd say by the latest of like, in the range of like 26 to 28, I think is a appropriate time to have kids, at least from my experience, no judging if you have it in another portion of life, but that's my ideal will work for me. Um, I think I absolutely would, yes. I know that it would be 
very tough for my children. Um, if I die in the ballpark of 40 to 45, they won't be fully developed yet. But I think I will have at that point had enough of an impact on their life that I could have shaped, at least um, hopefully shaped their outcomes, that at least of a significant enough portion that I felt or would feel that my, I guess my parenting did something for them. I left behind a legacy of kids that have at least been somewhat shaped by me. I think I absolutely would, yeah. That's a really good answer, and I think that that touches on um, one, of the, one of the main, main points in fatherhood being that, being that like the, the first few years of a child's life mm-hmm. are the critical times yes. for the father to have his influence and um, on, on those outcomes. And so when, when I first thought about this, my, my gut reaction was probably not because it, of it basically not because I didn't want it to be unfair mm-hmm. to said children. Um, but after thinking about it, and someone someone made the point that, think about think about your own life. Mm. Would then you know, for, fortunately my immediate family is all alive and well, but they said, you know, would you rather never have been here or have been given that opportunity to live life um, even with, a parent, a sibling, um, losing theirs prematurely. And I said, yeah, that, that probably is a good point. And so, um, and th- though this is a crazy hypothetical anyway, one, one other thing would be like, certainly it would be a discussion with the wife. Um, cause you know, that, that leaves behind quite the burden on her. But after, after thinking about it a lot longer than I gave you the chance to, uh-huh. I, I think I would as well. Yeah. I, I think it's, you would have enough time with, your child that I think it would be a fulfilling experience for the both of you now had you said like 30 I think that's a much that's fair answer. that's fair but in the ballpark of 40 to 45 I think there's enough time to leave a impactful significance in their life and and I I think that ties in to really how part of what I was saying towards the beginning of how the what we seek as humans is this community with others mm-hmm. and so even even if i'm even if i do leave this place early um th- those i leave behind will be able to share in that commu- communion still mm-hmm. yeah and i mean if you one of the big takeaways i have from fatherhood is um a discussion we had real early on of like ultimately what is the purpose of being a father what's the purpose of fatherhood and the two things that stick out to me is one are your kids happy like can you what's the word for it can you intrinsically give them the value of being happy like can they make themselves happy as well can you help out with that that's number one and number two would be bridging the gap between like them in your household and the real world like can you make them Someone who, I don't really want to say fits into society, but someone who can, it's difficult to explain it. These are kind of the two big ideas of fatherhood. I guess, um, can you give them an avenue in which they can thrive in the world? Yes, that's, that's a good way to put it. The, okay, now you got me thinking, we'll go a little longer. Um, something professor said probably two or three weeks ago, and he was he was saying that um, 
part of what you should do as a father is basically I had I actually don't remember how he phrased it, but it was along the lines of let kids know that you're there for them, that you love them unconditionally, mm-hmm. but that they are not the center of the universe. Correct. And I, I think I remember the context. Um, and one Okay, well, tell me, you can, you can add on, but the part I distinctly remember was him talking about, like, if you're at some social gathering and you're talking to an adult, or even just at home with your wife, something, and that your kid runs up to you and is trying to get your attention, that you should not turn to them and um, talk with them and everything until you finish your conversation. Now he, he, he did say you know you should acknowledge them and say hey, <laughs> Don't just ignore them. yeah he should say hey, um, let me finish this conversation and then I will be with you. Now I I will say and this is probably where sensitivity comes in mm-hmm. if they're like crying uncontrollably or yeah for you sure. know with children stuff happens, um, but that was a really interesting point to me not only for fatherhood but life in general. Because I think I'm terrible at that. The when I'm when I'm having a conversation with 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 anyone really, if another person comes up to me, I will. I will I I will give them my attention, taking it away from that initial conversation. I feel like every single time, and part of it I think is when I do that. Um, Especially, I'm kind of, oftentimes these situations I'm thinking of, um, the person I'm talking to initially is maybe, this might sound bad, but like maybe a little more important to me or like um, just I know is going to be there. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. Yeah. And so then, and so like probably at the time when I do that, it's like, oh, Cooper's going to be there. When I after I deal with this side thing, mm-hmm. so it's okay. Um, but now I think does that does that con- does is that does that convey to Cooper that he's not as important to me and maybe not. Yeah, so I think it's more in the context of like a little youngster running around um, because from what I remember of that context of that um, portion of that lecture was that it was for the smaller children who then might think, oh well, I'm the center of their attention. Mm-hmm. I can- do this however I want, like they can get a little manipulative with it. But I guess that is kind of interesting. Um, I think it would depend on the person. Like, if a buddy came up to me as I was talking to a professor, I probably wouldn't turn to him. But, like, if I'm just talking to buddies, I think they would probably understand, like, hey, what's going on here? Um, again, if you want to throw the blanket answer to fatherhood, it's sensitivity, just mm-hmm. understanding your social context. But. Yeah, that is, I do wonder if that plays out the same way, like in a social setting between friends. Yeah. It's interesting. Yeah, and it, I don't know, it, you're right that it's different, but I do, I, I, I do think that, um, and it's it's something I, I'm, even since since then, I've, I've been trying to just, I don't know. Just cognizant of it. Yeah. 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 Good social skills. <laughs> for sure, for sure. Well, Cooper, I think that's all I have. Thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. It yeah. was a pleasure. Always, always. Um, yeah, with that, we'll go ahead and end things. Uh, so we'll see you guys next time.